You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay, well, welcome everyone to uh, our eighth week in First and Second Kings, and well done. You guys have stuck it out. I like to think it's because of the teaching. I'm guessing it's partly to do with the cookies. But that's okay, that's okay. These cookies are good. Oh, and Dave's got his cookie online. So yeah, your cyber cookie, that's okay. <laughs> All right, so we are going to uh, do a whirlwind. I bet your reading was quite a bit this week, eh? Uh, chapter 6 to 17. We have two more weeks after tonight. And then we're finishing up First uh, and Second Kings. So let me begin with prayer, and then we're going to dive right in. Because again, we have uh, lots to look at. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your goodness and for your kindness, for your generosity. We thank you that um, you are a giving God, that you so love the world you gave your only begotten Son. Everything we have is a gift from you. So we pray, Lord, that you would help us to lean into your word tonight. That you would point out intersecting points between uh, our lives and and what is going on in 2 Kings. That your word would speak into our hearts and you grant us courage to hear what you have to say and respond to what you say to us. Lord, we ask this not in our own strength, but in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, welcome everyone. Grab a chair and a cookie. Um, all right, so tonight we're going to look at Second Kings chapter six through seventeen. So this is way too ambitious, but I think we can do it. <laughs> now, what we're going to be doing tonight is we're going to be flying at mostly twenty thousand feet, but we're going to swoop down a little bit. Um, and one of the things you're going to find tonight in the story of, um, of Israel and the story of Judah is the, the kings that we're going to be looking at and their lives and the situations actually cross-reference quite a bit with, our, with, with the prophets, minor and major prophets. In fact, one of the uh, prophets who's going to figure largely um, in, 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 in the time period that we're going to be looking at, uh, well, a couple of prophets. We're going to look at um, um, Isaiah and Hosea and Amos. And I love Amos, the book of Amos. Now, we don't have time to spend a lot uh, in the book of Amos, but how, how many of you have read the book of Amos? Has anybody ever read that? Yeah. Yeah. So how many of you guys have read it? Put up your hand. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I have fair number, right? Well, Amos is a shepherd. He's a shepherd and um, from Tekoa. <laughs> and he is writing in the time of Uzziah, king of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam II, son of Joash, king of Israel. And we're going to cover those kings tonight. But I love Amos because Amos begins, he's, he's, he's very clever. He's, he's one of my favorite prophets because he's not even like a professional prophet. He is a shepherd 
that God calls to deliver a message. And he, the way he delivers the message, I think, is brilliant. And if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Amos. See, see if you can find it. You know, Ten points to Gryffindor, if you can find it. Um, it's uh, somewhere, uh, one of the smaller books. Not far past uh, Daniel. Uh, just Amos 1. Yeah. Past Joel. You'll find Amos. Now, I'm just going to briefly say, but I, I love the way what Amos does. And this will give you a flavor uh, for some of the prophecies that we hear tonight. Amos starts off. He's got, he's got a, a captive audience, right? He's got a captive audience. He's speaking to the Israelites, to the northern kingdom. And so what does he say? He says, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. Thus saith the Lord. And he starts speaking words of judgment. For three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. For they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So he goes after the Syrians. And you can imagine the Israelites are like, the Syrians? We hate the Syrians. I like this guy. I like this guy. Preach it, Amos. Then Amos gets going, right? And then he gets, in verse 6, for the three transgressions of Gaza, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. And so he lays out another prophecy, and people are like, we hate these people. This is great. What a prophet. And then we get to uh, verse 9. For three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. For they delivered up a whole people to Edom and do not remember the covenant of brotherhood. And they're like, yes! Oh, this guy. We hate those from guys from Tyre. Yeah, preach it, Amos. And then verse 13. For the three transgressions of the Ammonites. <laughs> we hate the Ammonites even more than anyone else. Well done, preach it. And then it gets even better in chapter 2. For the three transgressions of Moab, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. And he tells why. He goes, the Moabites, those are our traditional enemies. Preach it, Amos. This guy can preach. And, and, and the next part is even better, because he's from Judah. And look what he says. For the three transgressions of Judah, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. For they have rejected the law of the Lord. He goes, Amen. Give it to those Judeans. Because those guys, they split from us. And we knew that they were crooked. And here we have one of the very prophets from Judah calling it like it is. Huzzah for Amos. And then Amos got them. right. And so he's just, everybody's like, we love this guy. And then look what he does. Verse 6. Oh, for the three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell their righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn away the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. And then you'd hear a pin drop. It's like, we're not so sure we like this Amos anymore. Now, this is the kind of prophetic word that's going on in the time of the prophet, in the time of the kings that we're going to be looking at. 
and things are going to come to a head. Things are going to get pretty bad, and by the end, I won't give it away where it ends in case you hadn't finished it, but a couple of themes that are going to show up in these chapters that we're going to look at today, tonight. Here's some of the themes. One, surprising cooperation. You actually see the two royal houses of Israel and Judah coming together, and they're interconnected in their marriage and, not surprisingly, in their apostasy. This is the first time these houses come together, like this, since the time of Solomon. We find them working together, battling, defending against the kingdom uh, of Syria, usually. Yeah. And you're also going to find a time where there's quite a bit of wealth. Um, Never since the time of Solomon did both Israel and Judah flourish the way they did, just for a window of time. And we're going to look at that. Riches were gained, and there was the relative stability in the land. Unfortunately, the people saw these riches as a sign of their special status. They also used the riches to what? To oppress the poor. And one of the things that I've been enjoying, as I shouldn't say enjoying, but I am enjoying it, because it's the, it's the work of the Lord. Um, I've been enjoying teaching First and Second Kings and preaching the Ten Commandments. Because I find that there's so much intersection. And so this weekend I'm preaching on Thou Shalt Not Steal. And, uh, and it's interesting because when we think of Thou Shalt Not Steal, we think of robbers stealing. You know, I got stuff and they break in, they steal my stuff. But in the Old Testament, stealing is almost always, this commandment is almost always directed against the rich for stealing the lives of the poor. It's, it's, a, it's a lot of it is about economic oppression, which is a big theme in what we're looking at in 2 Kings tonight. And so not surprisingly, we also have a lot of prophetic activity. This is the time where many of the prophets, major and minor, were active. And so the, one of the first prophets we're going to look at, yeah, that's good, <laughs> Lori. Sounds like today's governments, yes. Um, one of the first prophets uh, we're going to look at is, of course, our man Elisha. And we see Elisha uh, way back in chapter 6. Again, what we're going to do is we're going to hover at 20,000 feet, and we'll dive in every now and then. We'll read a little bit, but we have to do that in order to get through this. Uh, Elisha gets drawn into political events as they relate to Syria, but his prophetic activity affects the individuals he deals with. Um, we see some fun stories with Elisha. You know, they're out, and the guy with, he's working with an axe head or something like that, and the axe head goes, whoa, goes flying off and lands in the water. Sounds like... So once in my life I was in shop class. We used to call it shop class. You shop class? And I made a hammer for my dad. I hated shop class. I was terrible. If you know me, I'm just terrible. So, but I made a hammer for my dad, and I tempered. What's that? It, it it did sort of look like a hammer, and I wrote my dad's name on the side, and I gave it to him. Then I tempered it, and I put it together, and I gave it to him. And he was out working, and he's hammering something. He said, "Dad, why aren't you using my hammer?" He's like, "Oh, I think I have it here somewhere." And he pulls it out, <laughs> hits it once, second hit. The head goes flying off. And that was the end. 
so between a hammer and I once made a wooden duck for my mom and the head fell off. So th and then I gave up shop. <laughs> so here you have an axe head <laughs> going flying off. Elisha shows himself experienced. So we know he's experienced at manipulating water. He's able to make the axe head float. And sometimes you, I, you know, sometimes I can imagine we wish we had this prophetic gift when we drop our phones in the water. Um, prophetic power is also on display uh, in a story. It's a cool story that involves the king of, of, of Syria. Uh, because the king is frustrated. The king is frustrated. He calls his men. He's, he's, he's like, how is it that Israel knows every single move we are going to make? They just seem to know what we're doing. And, and uh, well, they're, they're, he's told, well, it's, it's the prophet. It's Elisha. He's filling him in. And, which is interesting because it tells you that Elisha and the king of Israel, there's some rapprochement that has happened there. They seem to be getting along. Elisha helps Jehoram have prophetic insight into what's going on in the king of Syria. Now, the king of Syria discovers this, and he orders his men to find out where Elisha is in order to capture him. This is a running theme that people think that they can capture and control the word of God. Um, and, and the funny part is, is they want to sneak up on Elisha. The, the same Elisha that's telling, you know, that's revealing all that the king is whispering in his bedroom, who knows what's going on, everything, they think they're going to sneak up on Elisha. So he's surrounded by troops. Before you know it, surrounded by troops. Uh, this is in chapter 6. Uh, Elisha doesn't seem too worried about it. Why? Because he knows there's spiritual protection at hand. And, um, and he knows that around the armies is the armies of the Lord. And he's been given eyes to see. And so we, if you read the story, the armies are kind of driven into some kind of confusion. They're handed into Jehoram's hands. But Jehoram allows them to return home. And peace ensues for a while. Now, and I, I, when I was thinking about this, this passage, I was just thinking about you know, how Elisha knew. He knew that there were armies of God around them. And I was thinking about what Diane shared on the weekend. Some of you may have missed it. When somebody gave her a prophetic word about in our church, in the sanctuary, I don't know if you remember that, about an angel of the Lord standing I thought that's, and I wonder, I wonder how our lives would be transformed if we could see with spiritual eyes that there's a lot more going on in and around us than we realize. And sometimes the issue is we need to have eyes to see. There was a, um, a book series in the 90s. I didn't really like it that much, but I liked what he was trying. It was Frank Peretti. He wrote this book called This Present Darkness. Does anybody ever remember that from the night? Yeah. And so basically the, the premise is, is that, you know, you could see all these, you know, either demonic or angelic forces. And, but what I appreciate about it is that he, he brought to light the spiritual world. And sometimes in our secular West, the strategy of the evil one is to put you to sleep and believe that he does not exist and that the spiritual world doesn't exist. And it's good to be reminded of its reality. And I love that in, in this passage. By the time you get to verse 24, Syria is up to its tricks again. Um, we come across another Ben-Hadad. And um, 
and he invades Israel and he wants to take over Israel and he surrounds he, he surrounds Samaria and um, through a siege and things are so bad that people inside the city gates are starving there's no food and as a result prices have gone through the roof and so we real we read an example of this how expensive food is because the only food to be bought was a donkey's head and pigeon poo that's the only food to be on hand and and it's just it's dark it's very dark because there's cannibalism there's despair and the only thing that people can do is wait upon the Lord to rescue them Jehoram who's wearing sackcloth in, in mourning He's horrified by the news he's hearing. And he gets frustrated. He gets frustrated at God. And he wants to take out his frustration against God. And so what does he do? He turns against God's prophet. He goes after Elisha. And Elisha, he knows what's going to happen. He knows that they're going to try to kill him. But and he tells the king, he says, hey, don't worry. By this time tomorrow, it's the prices are going to drop there's going to be food and it's going to be cheap and he tells the king this and he's got a commander and his commander just rolls his eyes he's like as if that's going to happen and elisha looks at him and goes you're going to see this happen but you're not going to take part in it and the next, that, that night, we read, we read the story about some lepers. And I love these lepers. They're like, hey, man, we're going to die. If we're going to die, we may as well go out trying, right? It's kind of like, like the guys, you know. Here's one comedian. He says, you know, if, if he was ever in a plane and the plane was about to crash, he says, I got something I'm going to try. I'm going to go out onto the wing and I'm going to flap my arms. He goes, you can laugh, but if I take off. He says, or if he's in an elevator, he goes, if the elevator starts falling to the ground, about to crash, he goes, six inches before it hits the ground, I'm going to jump up in the air and give it a shot. So I love these lepers. They're like, hey, man, we're going to die. We stay here, we're going to die. We go over to this army. They may kill us, but we're going to die anyhow. Let's give it a shot. And so they go out, and the army's gone. And somehow the army, you know, thought that there was uh, something going on. Um... All the, all the Syrians are gone. They're confused and they take off. And so what's left? Loss of food. <laughs> and I love the lepers because the lepers are like, let's eat first and then we'll tell everybody. <laughs> we're, not quite, we're not quite really sure what's going on here, so uh, we'll just wait a little bit. And then they're like, all right, we should probably tell everybody. So they go back and they said, the Syrian army's gone, there's lots of food. And people are like, I'm not so sure. And once they realize it's true, well, then they all rush out. Well, where's the commander? The commander's like, all right, everybody slowly, right, in rows of two. Everyone, they're like, they all run out, and they run over him and kill him. And the prophecy comes true. So, again, we get that theme. See, those who stand in the way of God's salvation tend to die in judgment. Only the humble, like the lepers, are recipients of God's blessing. Now, the story shifts, and what's going to happen next 
is something that we've been waiting for. I mean, we, we haven't been looking forward to this. I mean, we're compassionate, but we've been waiting for the hammer to fall on the house of Ahab. Haven't you been waiting for this? <laughs> I mean, we've, we've had prophecy after prophecy that Ahab, everything's going to go down. Your family is, is done, but it keeps being delayed. And so you wonder, okay, what's going on? In fact, we hear this prophecy way back in 1 Kings 14. And we hear how unstable the northern kingdom's going to be. But actually, the house of Omri turns out to be pretty stable. It lasts a long time. It's been ruling since 1 Kings chapter 16. This is despite Elijah's prophecy against the house. What's more, Ahab's second son remains in power. And Elisha's kind of working with them too. Now, part of the issue, and it's an interesting story, and it kind of continues to build the story of Elijah. Do you remember way back in 1 Kings 19, God actually tells, it's just a very brief part, and it's, it's easy to miss, but God actually tells Elijah, I want you to do two things. I want you to anoint two people. Do you remember that? He says, I want you to anoint Hazael, of Syria and Jehu to become leaders and Jehu will bring judgment against the house of Ahab now we get this problem that's a, an instruction given to Elijah but what seems to have happened is that Elijah didn't do anything with it never never obeyed God which is an interesting because we're, we're, we're talking about Elijah he's, he's a mixed bag that guy there's times where he's, he's quite on, on top of things. There's other times it's just like, why? Why didn't you obey God? And so, basically, judgment has been delayed. Because judgment against the house of Ahab is going to come through both those people, right? So, what is going to happen? Well, we read in this time a little bit more about the uh, Shunammite woman's life that we encountered before. But then, we're introduced to Jehu. Omri's bane, the destroyer of the house of Omri. I just want to give him a little drama, right? Uh, because he is pretty ruthless. And, 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 and we come across, and it's an interesting theme that comes, that's reiterated here. I don't know if you've noticed this. One of the themes that shows up in First and Second Kings is the theme of how foreigners often seek out the Lord, whereas the people of God do not. Have you noticed that? You've got the Shunammite woman who seeks out uh, the prophet. Think about um, um, Nahum. Um, he you know, seeks out a healing, right? Um, and now you even have Ben-Hadad. If, if you look at um, chapter 8, verse 7. Now, Elisha came to Damascus. This is in Syria. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And when it was told him, the man of God has come here, the king said to Hazael, take a present with you and go meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord through him, saying, shall I recover from this sickness? So Hazael went to meet him and took a present with him, all kinds of goods of Damascus, 40 camel loads. When he came and stood before him, he said, your son... Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, 
shall I recover from the sickness? And Elisha said to him, Go, say to him, You shall certainly recover. But the Lord has shown me that he shall certainly die. Isn't that interesting? You will recover and you will die. And he fixed his gaze and stared at him until he was embarrassed. And the man of God wept. And Hazael said, why does my Lord weep? And he answered, because I know the evil that you're going to do to the people of Israel. You'll set fire on their fortresses and you will kill their young men with the sword and dash in pieces their little ones and rip open their pregnant women. And Hazael said, what is your servant who who is but a dog that he should do such a great thing? And Elisha answered, the Lord has shown me that you are to be king over Syria. Then he departed from Elisha and came to his master, who said, What did Elisha say to you? And he answered, He told me that you would certainly recover. But the next day he took a a bedcloth and dipped it in water and spread it over the face till he died. And Hazael became king in his place. Interesting story, eh? Is Hazael's one tough customer. From that point on, we get the effects of it's, it's an interesting thing. We get, you're going to notice that over these years, there's been a lot of intermarriage between Israel and Judah. And what you're going to find is this Ahab's family is actually spread down into Judah, that there's a lot of intermarriage going on here. Uh, we know that Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, begins to reign when Jehoram was reigning in the north. And this is where... We need our handy-dandy chart, because I don't know about you, but everybody seems to have the same name and twice. Um, and his name is also known as this. It's like, oh, okay. You know, it's like reading a Russian novel, right? Everybody's got like seven names. Um, Jehoram, as it turns out, emulates the, kings of way, uh, the ways of King Ahab, walks wickedly and does evil in the sight of the Lord. And he, we find out that Jehoram, his wife, was the daughter of Ahab. Again, who you marry matters. Uh, So both kingdoms, north and south, become more and more wicked. The control of the land begins to contract. Edom, which used to be quite uh, subservient, now starts exercising its muscles, flexing its muscles. Um, And Judah gets caught up in Ahab's family. So here's, here's here's a question that's being asked at this point. Is we know that judgment's gonna come down on Ahab's family. Right? But is Judah going to get caught up into it? As judgment comes down, it will it just hit the north, or because of the intermarriage and stuff like that, is Judah also going to come under judgment? So we're going to see what's going to happen next. Well, the hammer does fall. Jehu, Jehu, uh, who's mentioned back in 1 Kings 19, But in 2 Kings 9, only then does he step into the crucial role of judge over the house of Omri. And Jehu, if you look at his life, he is a one-man wrecking machine. He is just... And so Elijah was supposed to have anointed Jehu, but he doesn't. So it's left to Elijah. And how does Elijah anoint him? Do you guys remember? It's a, it's a drive-by anointing. <laughs> it's, it's awesome. 
Elisha sends a junior prophet. He's like, oh, why do I have to go? Come on, man. It's your first day on the job. I got a job for you. Take this oil. I want you to run. Find Jehu. He's a commander. This is where you're going to find him. I want you to run and anoint him and then get the heck out of there. Right? Get out of there as fast as you can. And so he, that's what he does. He runs off and he anoints it. And so he's covered in oil. And then his men are like, dude, what just happened? And he's like, uh, yeah, nothing really. And they're like, is that oil in your hair? You're the new king. And so all the people are like, huzzah! And they lift him up. You're our new, you're our new king. Meanwhile, the young prophet's just like, you know, I should have picked a different job. He had ran back home, uh, got out of there as quick as he could. So Jehu's now king. And he wastes no time. He has no time for anyone who's like, wants to dither. Uh, he's, it's just this cool picture. He's like, you know, riding his horse and his, his men are with him and they're riding towards Jezreel. And, and, you know, people are looking from the city. They're like, who is that? I see a cloud of dust. Go see who that is. So he sent out a messenger. He goes, ah, uh, the messenger says, who are you? He goes, you're either with me or against me. Fall in line. Yes, sir. Right? And the second one, the same thing. Who are you? You're either with me or against me. Fall in line. And so the army gets bigger and bigger. And if you're the king, you're like, where are my messengers going? They're just, they're joining this guy. And so Jehoram, he realizes, man, I am toast. And he goes to run, but then an arrow takes him out. Now, Ahaziah, who's the king of Judah, happens to be there, and he's, he's, he's related to them through marriage to the house of Ahab. Um, he's also taken down. And Jehu, from that point on, is like, okay, so it begins. Who does he go after? Who's still alive? The white witch. Yeah, Jezebel's still alive. So he's going to go after Jezebel. And uh, she's sitting at a window, and she's all cocky. She's all dressed up kind of like a prostitute, interestingly. And she unrepentantly taunts the king. And, uh, but the king gets the last laugh, and he says, you know, calls out on two eunuchs, throw her down from the wall. And they throw her down from the wall, and she gets trampled, and she dies. And um, he goes inside, and he says, all right, somebody go out and bury the body. They go to bury the body, and what, what has happened? The dog's got her, right? And again, the prophecy is being fulfilled. And does anybody know where does the body fall? It's a little bit of... Uh, you know, um, prophetic justice here. Where does the body fall? What area? Does anybody know? On um, on Naboth's property. Yeah, Naboth's vineyard. The very land that had been stolen. So there's this, this cool picture of, uh, of justice here. Now, Elijah had prophesied that, uh, that the Lord would cut off all of Ahab's male descendants. Turns out, as we look more carefully, he had lots of kids. 
And Jehu's like, I'm going to take them all out. And not just the male, I'm going to take out everybody. And he, and he sets out to do that. But again, the problem is, is Judah's connected to this. So is Judah also going to fall to the sword of Jehu? So we know that there's about 70 sons from the house of Ahab living in Samaria. Jehu challenges the servants of the city. Who are you going to serve? Me or the house of Omri? If you're going to serve me, give me all the heads of the sons. It's a pretty gruesome chapters. Um, And so he gets all the heads of the sons and as a result, he gets ahead in life. Yeah, I knew you, you saw that one coming. <laughs> so, so that's not nice. Yeah. But then Jehu, uh, Jehu, what does he do? He heads to Jezreel and he mops up any other stragglers in Jezreel. And again, you feel sorry for, well, maybe you should, but I, the poor people in Judah, the royal house in Judah, they keep getting caught up into this thing and there's some relatives of Ahaziah, they just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, they're captured, they're killed. All this is to fulfill the, the prophecy and then Jesus is like, you know what, while we're doing this we're going to take out the Baal the, sorry, the Baal cult. Um, and so he says, hey I worship Baal everybody, you know what, we should have a big festival to support our worship of Baal. And so if you are a priest of Baal, I expect you to show up for this big party and I'm gonna, I'll lead the, uh, I'll lead the sacrifice and you guys could all join, this would be great. And, and all the priests are like, wow, okay, he likes Baal. And so they all gather together and Jehu says, all right, he tells his man, he goes, if any one of them gets out alive, you're toast. And they're all killed. And, and, and then the temple of Baal is destroyed and the location is made a toilet. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Ken says, it's not even worth repeating. He says, he says, that's a bunch of Baaloni. Right? This is what I got to work with here. Okay. okay. <laughs> Yeah, I did start it, yes. Okay, so now at this stage of the game, you think that, okay, maybe, maybe Israel's finally going to get rid of its idolatry. But we need to remember that Baal is simply one of the many gods that Israel had, was worshipping. And we read about Jehu. Um, he's not careful to walk in the ways of the Lord. He keeps Jeroboam's golden calves in place. But he's better than the house of Ahab. So, but his, the, the, the sins of Jeroboam still are played out in his life. Because what, what, you're, what we're going to discover is that idolatry is just seeped into the very core, the fabric of the land. Um, under Hazael, we've, we've come across him, the king, king of Syria. Israel's going to be under a lot of pressure and is under steady assault against this uh, aggressive king. Now, I came across something interesting this week. Um, I, and I didn't... <laughs> Somebody said, <laughs> you could say that was a very healthy bowel movement. 
<laughs> oh man, that's good. That's good. Okay. <laughs> oh, that's good. Uh, I came across something interesting. Do you know around this time period, I was uh, listening to uh, Ian Proven, who's an expert on First and Second Kings, and he talked about um, just a lot of archaeological support for this time period and what's going on. In fact, the only picture, I think, depiction of an Israel king through archaeology is a, is a picture of Jehu. But it's a picture of Jehu submitting to a Syrian king. Uh, but it's just kind of interesting. I wish I had the, the, the picture, but uh, there's, there's surprisingly some really interesting, well, not surprising, but there's a lot of interesting archaeological support um, for a lot of the events that are going on. Now, we come across in chapter 11, see, we're moving along. Chapter 11, we come across another Jezebel, uh, but her name is Ataliah, Ataliah, and she reigns in Judah. Now, it turns out she may have been the daughter of Jezebel, so not a shock that she's kind of similar, um, moral resemblance. She's, she's the kind of woman that when she finds out that, that her son was dead, in an act of grief and deep compassion, she destroys the entire royal family. Um, because she wants to be king, or wants to be queen. And this looks bad. Now, you think about this for a moment. Here you have the daughter of Jezebel in Judah destroying the whole royal family. Wait a second, wait a second. What about the promise to David? Is this the end of the Davidic line? Is this the end of the, of the land of Judah? No, it turns out that one child, one child was rescued. A little prince whose name is Joash and his aunt Jehosheba hides him. Now, thankfully, Ataliah's reign is not long. There's a coup arranged by the chief priest, a guy named Jehoiada. Joash is brought out and crowned and presented with the divinely ordained laws, a copy of the covenant, is anointed and proclaimed king. Ataliah screams out, treason, but she's killed. And Joash is crowned king. And David, the Davidic line, is maintained. Huzzah, that's good. So let's look at Joash for a moment. Joash, or Jehoash, has a long reign, 40 years. And we read about his reign in, in, in 1 Kings chapter 12. Um, what do we know about Joash? Well, we read, a, it's a bit of a mixed bag. He did what was right in some ways, but he does, he's like so many of the kings, except for one, which we'll come across next week. He does not remove the high places, which are places of pagan worship. And then, then you read something quite interesting. There's a whole section on, do you remember this? He's repairing the temple. He wants to repair the temple. But there's a problem. What's the problem with repairing the temple? Do you guys remember? Uh, this is a lot of detail from last week. I know that. And there's no money. But why is there no money? Yeah, the priests just don't want to spend money on the building when they... They, they want to keep the money. And it's, so the, they try, he tries to repair the temple. The priests are more concerned 
that the donated money, they don't want it to go into building projects, so they drag their feet. Joash takes over, he arranges for money to be collected and used for temple repair work. But they did repair the temple, yeah. So where does the money go? It's, it, so you're just getting an insight into how corrupt things are, even in the land of Judah. And it takes him, if you read it carefully, you'll find it takes him 23 years before he notices that the repairs are not going as he had planned. I mean, that's not really being on top of things, right? It takes him 23 years. Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, there is similarities, right? And Joash doesn't really have much zeal for the Lord, doesn't have a whole lot of wisdom. The temple is crumbling, and nobody seems to care, which I think is a picture of what's going on. Joash, as a military figure, doesn't do well. He's oppressed by Hazael. Jerusalem is attacked, and so what does he do? He empties out the treasuries of the temple, the temple that's falling apart, and the palace in order to save Jerusalem. And so Joash, and you read about him in Chronicles as well, you, you find out that he, he's not that great of a king, actually. He seems to do well when he has a mentor, when the priest is his mentor. But once he kind of goes out, steps out on his own, he stops being an effective king, which I think is a, the lesson is about mentors as well. Now we're going to come to the end of the life of Elisha, right? Elisha will, will die. Um, the king, one of the kings um, of Israel, or the king of Israel, arrives to consult Elisha. He says, you know what? The Syrians are killing us. They're, they're just doing a number on us. What should we do? And Elisha says, you know what? Take these arrows, pound the, these arrows on the ground, and as many times, you, you know, that, that's just going to show you how you're going to defeat these rotten Syrians. And so the king hits it once, twice, three times, and stops. And it's kind of strange. Elisha says, why do you stop at three? Just keep hitting it, because that's going to show how you know, complete your victory was. Now you're just going to have maybe three victories, and then that's it. So it's kind of a strange story. And I think what the issue is in this situation is wholeheartedness. Is the king's kind of, I'll do what you are telling me to do, but I don't really believe it. And I was thinking about this this week. Now, maybe it's a stretch, but I was thinking about how in our life, in our life with God, we settle for good enough. What is, what is Paul teaches in Ephesians 3? He says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. So the picture of God is one who can do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine. And here you have a king who doesn't have a lot of imagination. He says, I'll do what you want me to do, but really his mind's probably somewhere else. And I'd say, to me, that when I was preparing this this, this week, it was a real warning, because how often do we just go through the motions, and do we really, do we really trust that God is able to do all that we, you know, more than we could ask or imagine, immeasurably more. 
Yeah, in Ephesians 3. Yeah, 3.20. Elisha dies. Now, let's just talk about Elisha for a while. Elisha, in many ways, mirrors that, his life mirrors that of Elijah. He actually does more miracles than Elijah. Um, there's parallels, we think, in, in the way the text is written between Elijah and Elisha and Moses and Joshua. I think there's, there's, there's some parallel points. Um, like Elijah, Elijah brought life in the midst of death. He mediated salvation even to foreigners. He performed more miracles than his predecessor. But interesting, how often is Elijah, maybe I have it in your notes, how often is Elisha mentioned in the New Testament? Just once. Elijah's mentioned a bunch of why? So why do you think Elisha is hardly mentioned in the New Testament, where Elijah gets quite a bit of press? Do I have it in the notes? Oh, I gave it away. Yeah. There was concern in the early church that, you know, that people would make the comparison of John the Baptist as Elijah and then Jesus potentially as Elisha in the same kind of Moses, Joshua kind of thing. But they're saying, no, Jesus is so much more than Joshua. He's so much more than, than that. And so there's thought that one of the reasons why um, Elisha is downplayed in the New Testament is that so people wouldn't compare his life to Jesus in the same way Elijah was connected to John the Baptist. That's a thought. Okay, so the next part, the next part is the disintegration of Israel. So these next few chapters, Israel's just spiraling downwards. Um, even when things are looking up for a bit, um, there's some prosperity, but there's no faithfulness. And that's a real warning to us because prosperity does not necessarily mean blessing. That's the danger of the health wealth gospel. God wants you to be rich, right? Oh, I'm rich. That means God is blessing me. I'm poor. That means God's angry with me. This, our passage teaches us that prosperity doesn't say one thing or the other. It doesn't necessarily mean that God is causing the person to prosper. The issue is faithfulness. And without spiritual renewal, all you're going to have is a brief respite on the way to judgment. Now, how do we know that the judgment is coming? Because if you read carefully, you can see a shadow growing over the land. And the shadow is not from Mordor, but something very similar to Mordor. It's an empire called the Assyrian Empire, led by their dark lord, great name, Tiglath-Pileser III. Now, there's going to be a small group of kings that are going to try to keep this kingdom at bay, but in the end, they will fail. And the question is, if Israel fails, will Judah fall as well? Now, Israel does fall to the Assyrians. Just jumping ahead. They fall in 722 BC. Why? Well, on one hand, they're a small nation facing a great empire. Yes. But that's not the reason why the narrator gives us. It's not the reason that the narrator gives us. We'll look at that in a moment. 
So, what's going on here? Well, the first domino to fall was Syria. Syria falls to the Assyrians in 802 BC. Hazael dies, leaving, uh, here's a shocker, another Ben-Hadad, um, a serious leader, attacks Syria and conquered it, and for 50 years, Assyria leaves Israel alone. And Israel actually prospers in this time. A weakened Syria was attacked by both Judah and Israel, right? Now, there's two kings that are mentioned in chapter 14. Jehoaz of Israel and Amaziah of Judah. Amaziah of Judah, okay? And both kings have success against Syria. Um, and they often fight each other. It's interesting. It's actually a period of, 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 of um, prosperity. And instead of maybe getting right with God, they just end up fighting against each other. We read about Amaziah that he's a pretty good king. He's no David, but he's, he's not bad. And following Jehoash is a king whose name... Like, why would you name yourself Jeroboam? He's Jeroboam the second, right? But, I mean, Jeroboam doesn't have a great track record. Like, he's not... But, anyhow, his name is Jeroboam. He has a long reign and an evil reign. He doesn't do very well. And it's under Jeroboam the second that we read about Hosea and Amos. Both prophetic books emphasize God's love, patience, and fidelity towards adulterous Israel. What's the story of Hosea? What the, Hosea ends up marrying, you remember who he's told to marry? Gomer, Gomer yeah. Why does he, and what was Gomer? She's a, and so why does God tell the prophet Hosea to marry Gomer? A prostitute. What's that? Yeah, it's this demonstrate God's relationship with his people, that the people were adulterous, where God is faithful. Okay, I'm just, I'll tell you a quick story. <laughs> so, when I lived in China, there was a village uh, close to where I lived. And it was a very small village. And in the village, um, there was a man who is um, one of the leaders in the village. And he, he became a leader, but he was new to the village, so he didn't know the people very, very well. And he met this woman. And this woman, um, they dated, and he married her. And after he married her, he just found that everybody in the village was kind of laughing at him. And he didn't know why they were laughing at him. Well, it turned out it was a big joke because this woman could never get married because she was like the, the village prostitute or the village, like the really loose woman of the village. And this guy didn't know that. And everybody kept it secret from him. And he, he married her. And then everybody's like, ha, do you realize who this woman is? And even she, after they got married, is like, ha, joke's on you. You married me, and, and everybody knows that I'm, you know, kind of like the, the loose woman of the town. And the guy was just devastated. He was so angry that the whole town duped him, and that his wife duped him, and he was so angry. But around that, just prior to that, he had become a Christian. 
And as a Christian, he spoke to a friend of mine. And he says, I'm so mad. I'm so mad. What should I do? Should I just divorce? And my friend said, well, I don't know. He goes, why don't you see what the Bible says? You divorce everybody. Why don't you read the, the, the book of Hosea? Have you ever read that? So he read the book of Hosea, which is a picture of God's faithfulness amidst unfaithfulness. And so he reads this, and God spoke to him. And he says to his wife, he goes, you know what, you may have been the unfaithful person in town. But I'm going to love you, and I'm going to treasure you, and I'm going to um, be a faithful husband all of our days. I don't care anything about your past. I love you, and I will be faithful to you. And she didn't know what to make of that. And neither did the whole village. They're like, what's going on here? And he says, no, I'm doing this because this is how God treats us. And so I'm going to love my wife. And he walked in front of everybody in town holding her hand. He goes, this is my wife. And her heart began to change. And the whole village began to change. And they actually, the guy ends up becoming the mayor of the village. They lifted him up to become a mayor. But I always remember whenever I hear about the story of Hosea, I always think about that story in this village in the, in the province where I used to live in China. In God's word at work. So the sins, what were the sins of the people in these days? Well, Hosea tells us they included spiritual adultery. We read that in Hosea 1 and chapter 4. Thievery, stealing, ungratefulness. Hosea 4, verse 1, there's no acknowledgement of God in the land. All God received was empty sacrifices and idolatry. In Amos, we read about the oppression of the poor, injustice, immorality, and the love of wealth, and the ease over righteousness. And, and, and by the time we get to... Um, to the end of Jeroboam, it's, it's, it's Israel's lost his last chance to repent and get right. Assyria is going to come in. And I thought, um, when we look at these, these sins of the land, spiritual adultery, thievery, ungratefulness, oppression of the poor, injustice, immorality, love of wealth, ease over righteousness, I thought, well, you know what would be interesting? Um, how do we see these at play in our own culture? Why don't we just take a few moments to talk among ourselves, and you guys could write online if you want. I'm going to pause right here. Okay, any, uh, any thoughts on this, guys? <laughs> Lots of thoughts? <laughs> All right, well, let's, uh, let's gather in. And we'll, uh, I guess, yeah, I guess we still have a few more chapters. Oh, we're getting there. Um, how do we see these sins at play in our own culture? Where do you see them? What are some? Everywhere. <laughs> yeah, that's the same way. Everywhere, yeah. Instant gratification. So ease over righteousness. Yeah, yeah, very good. Yeah, and, and how, how, thrown, how thrown off we are over supply chain issues. <laughs> like, it's just like, what do you mean I can't get something in two days? 
You know, I have to wait? Yeah, ease over righteousness. What else? Yeah, poor people cannot get housing. They cannot afford it. And those who do have houses, apparently one quarter of them are in danger of losing them if the interest rates go up one, one, one or two more times. Yeah, I just read that today. Less than 3% are going to church regularly in BC. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very low. It's one of the lowest in the world. Yeah. So the love of wealth... Yeah, love of wealth and oppression of the poor tend to go hand in hand. Yeah. That's why I think the um, reading the prophets um, in our day and age is really important. Um, I think they can really speak into our situation. Uh, there's a, a great book called um, The Prophetic Imagination by a guy named Walter Brueggemann, which uh, I, th I think is, is quite helpful. It gives you the spirit of the prophets. Well, once we get to chapter 15, we're going to come across a king named Azariah. Now, Azariah is also known as, does anybody know? He's got another name. It's Uzziah. Uh, we read about that in chapter 15, verse 13. And this guy reigns for a long time, for uh, 52 years, but part of it's a co-reign, so you have to look at that carefully. But this king does what is right in the eyes of the Lord, except, again, those pesky high places. Uh, but then we read in Chronicles uh, about Uzziah, how he entered the temple, burnt incense on the altar, and confronted the priests, and was confronted by the priests for taking over their job, we read that he breaks out in leprosy. He never enters the temple again. We read about this in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. And in the, in the, in, in, in the year that King Uzziah died, what, do we, what happens? Just you know that line? In the, in the year that King Uzziah died. Yeah, what happens? I saw the Lord, yes. So you read in Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And it's fun when you're reading the, the prophets now, especially with an understanding of First and Second King, it's like, oh, oh, okay, these, these things are all taking place at the same time. Okay, what else is going on in these chapters? Lots of assassinations. <laughs> Uh, things are moving quickly in the north. One king after another comes onto the throne. They do not last very long. They be, they're killed by someone else who wants power. And as Israel falls deeper and deeper into sin. Yeah, yeah. I, I love Isaiah's response. Yeah. Who shall I? Yeah. Um, as Israel falls deeper into sin and disobedience, the kingdom fractures and begins to disintegrate. We come across the reign of a fellow named Shalom, and uh, he reigns for for how long? Uh, one month. <laughs> one month. Second shortest monarchy next to Zimri. And there's so this spiral, and everything's falling apart, which is a, I think. 
a picture of what happens when you and I fall deeper and deeper into sin, into idolatry. Everything begins to fall apart. Now, meanwhile, back in Judah, how does Judah survive? Well, they, they take a pro-Assyrian policy. Um, they're a weak nation, and they, they uh, throw their weight behind the Assyrians, but it's going to catch up to them later on. There's a guy named Ahaz. Now, we read about Ahaz. He reigns for 16 years. But Ahaz is an interesting king. He actually doesn't care about serving the Lord. He does whatever will work. Um, we read that he burns his son as a sacrifice, probably to the god Moloch. He makes sacrifices in the high places of the land. Ahaz is a committed polytheist. He believes in any God, any God that will get him out of the situation that he finds himself in. He's, 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 he's under threat by two nations in particular. What are those two nations? Syria and Israel. And so he's like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And he's, in, he's, he's confronted by a wish prophet. Do you remember which prophet confronts him? Isaiah and Isaiah says you're going to get out of this ask for a sign any sign and Ahaz says oh far be it for me to ask for a sign but in reality Ahaz has actually bribed the Assyrians to come and attack the Syrians and the Israelites in order to relieve some pressure but Ahaz pretends that he's all pious. He's like, oh, who am I to ask the Lord for a sign? And Isaiah says, ha, ah, nice try. You're not going to ask for a sign? I'll give you a sign. The virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. Right? It's a Christmas passage. But I, as I've preached on this many times, uh, a couple times anyhow, I don't think Emmanuel is meant to say to Ahaz, don't worry, Christmas is coming. You know, I don't, I don't think Ahaz is going to go, ah, and a Merry Christmas to you, Isaiah. You know, when, when Isaiah says, I'll give you a sign, the virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God with us, is a prophetic warning saying, you are looking for any other God, you're looking for any other help, you're not looking to Yahweh, he is with you. And it's not going to bode well for you. So I think Emmanuel is, is, is a prophetic sign of judgment, actually, within the context of Isaiah 7. So that's the context, right? But what does he do? He offers silver and gold. He gives it to Assyria in order to get out of trouble. Oh, yeah. I wonder if it isn't just as simple. Instead of listening to God and His direction, I start doing what I think is right. Yeah, I think. Uh, I, think I mean, I think it's that simple. Then we're not looking. I may never have committed adultery, but that doesn't mean I haven't sinned. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Well, and I think, I think the Puritans would agree with you. <laughs> Sin runs deep, deep within the hearts, yeah. 
And it's, it's, it's the elevation of what John Newton would call Mr. Self over everything else. Yeah. Okay, once we get to uh, look at chapter 16. Chapter 16. Um, we read that Ahaz travels to Damascus in Syria to see the defeat of the Syrians, uh, the Syria by the Assyrians. And, but it's interesting, a, this Ahaz is quite the character. He partakes in pagan worship. Um, and so Ahaz is a person who, whatever works, that's where he'll throw his weight, right? And I think he'll, he'll adapt and adopt whatever seems to be working. And I think about in our culture today, we abandon orthodoxy to blend into the culture so that things may go smoothly for us. Ahaz will do whatever will to go smoothly, except return to the Lord. And in the end, Israel, Israel is doomed in the north. The kingdom of Israel is on thin ice at this point. All it's going to take is one, one tiny little shift and, and everything's going to collapse. Well, sure enough, there's this king, King Hosea. He's like, man, I don't want to be under the thumb of the Assyrians. So he secretly forges an alliance with Egypt to try to push back against the Assyrians. It doesn't go well. And the Assyrians lay siege to Samaria and the people are taken into exile and Israel is no more. So let's look at this because I, I love our passage because our passage will teach us very clearly why all this happened. Look in chapter 17, verse 7. And this occurred. So it's going to tell us what, why it all happened. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods, and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all the towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and ashram on every high hill, under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places, as the nations did, whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger, and they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with the, all the law that I have commanded your fathers that I sent to you by my servants the prophets. But they would not listen, but were stubborn, as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he had made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. And they followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God 
and made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah, and they worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. And they served their sons, and they burned their sons and daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Doesn't get much clearer than that, does it? All the prophets are unified in their verdict. And the narrators, the Lord's people have become immersed in idolatry and all that went with it. And the people never realized how foolish it was to bow down to non-gods. They worshipped what was false and became false. You become what you worship. You worship what is dead, you become dead. And so the issue seems to be full-orbed idolatry and or Yahweh and other gods. And this led to oppression, greed, brutality. The Amos points out how Israel's women crush the needy, oppress the poor, exhort their husbands to exploit, exploit the poor. People are sold into slavery. Leaders are corrupt. And the leaders and the people over time grew numb and more numb to the truth of the Lord. And boy, when I was reading that today, I thought about our, our world today. With the exile of Israel, there's tremendous loss. There's a loss of the covenant. Uh, the covenant, there's four components, nation, covenant, land, and kingship. All of it, it's all gone. It's all gone. Ten of the twelve tribes are now in exile. And so then the question becomes at this stage, well, there's lots of questions. <laughs> you know, where are we at um, in our own Christian lives? You know, what was Billy Graham said? Re revival or any change needs to begin with me. So I can, I can point at Canada and I can say, oh, this is where Canada's going, going to hell in a handbasket. But I really need to begin, as you were saying, Maxine, you begin with your heart. You know, where am I? Where am I going wayward? And where, and look at the trajectory of our own lives. If things keep going the way they're going in our own lives, where will you and I end up? And this spiral downwards. We, come, we came across this last year when we studied Judges, right? And this, it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And so the question is, um, where, what's going to happen to Judah? Judah's going to be all by itself. What's going to happen? And so next week we're going to dive in and look at uh, the reign of uh, Hezekiah. But I want to just leave us with uh, just a couple thoughts, some lessons from the, from, uh, the land of Israel. Here's a couple less or a few lessons that I, I laid out. Some of them are in the form of a question. Where are we in danger of making the same mistakes that Israel made? Where are we in the danger of mistreating one another? What lies behind these acts of oppression, immorality, deceits, and injustice? And I think this, this what happens to Israel, I think it's a lesson it's a lesson that, that we need to pay attention to. 
the two lessons are like what happens when when we do not teach God's truth I think it's so important um, to teach God's word to teach God's truth because without good teaching I think people perish and we need to know what God's word teaches us and the other thing that shows up here is is a failure of memory and I remember Ian Proven talking about this the importance of memory in the Bible remember I mean right from the beginning remember that God was the one who delivered them out of Egypt out of the land of slavery and brought them into the promised land and God had revealed himself through the ten words the ten commandments through his law and and the people had forgotten they had just forgotten intentionally forgotten or what turned away but how much of our Christian life do we go off the rails because we forget what God has done when I come yeah I'll probably I shouldn't go on to this but uh, like I come across a lot of people today who are they're called ex-evangelicals like people who I used to be a Christian or I used to follow Jesus but I don't believe that anymore and uh, and they just walk away like prominent Christians and this isn't new. I mean, you got guys like Templeton, Charles Templeton, and then things like that in the past. But what causes a person to walk away? Well, I think what causes people to walk away is that people are living without memory. They just live in the immediate time. And so they read something online, and something comes across their Twitter feed, and like, oh, yeah, I may as well just give up on the whole thing. And they forget, they forget in the darkness what they learn in the light. And that's why we need to be people of memory. That's why we need to know our story, where we've come from, how God has worked in our own life, but how God has worked in the church over the years. And when we're, when we're people with memory, that's what's going to keep us going, especially when we have our doubts. It's like, well, hang on, no. No, this is the God who delivered us out of the land of slavery into freedom. This is the God. So <laughs> I knew I was going to get in. Okay, I'll... I'll a guy like John Newton, he lived in the 18th century. He's one of my favorite writers and thinkers. Former slave trader. Experienced God's amazing grace, rescued him. He ended up being one of the most remarkable pastors, writers, thinkers of the 18th century. He's one of my favorite thinkers across the board. Uh, pastors, yeah. Amazing grace. But he was known as a letter writer, actually, more than anything else. Um, and what he would do is every year in his journal, he'd remember key dates. He'd remember a date when he was at a storm at sea and he almost died and God rescued him. He remembered where God granted him wisdom and guidance to know whether or not to go into ministry. And he remembered those key anniversary dates and every year he would journal, he'd remember those dates, remember those dates, and he did that in order to recreate the emotional landscape of his first conversion, of the work of God in his life. And we need to remember key dates in our Christian lives. So when stuff happens, it's like, no, I remember this happened. I remember this happened. I belong to Jesus. Even though things are really dark right now, I'm going to remember what had happened. And I think as Christians, that's why I'm always going on about history, because we need to be people with memory. Without memory, we are tossed this way and that way. And what happens to Israel is they, they, they become people without memory. They forgot that God had rescued them out of Egypt. They forgot that God had, rescued, had saved them. And they get caught up with ease 
instead of righteousness. And so anyhow, the other thing, the passage teaches us the dangers of pluralism in worship by the church. Um, for a lot of these kings, any god will do so long as the god works. And by working, it means it works for them. <laughs> Those who believe in false gods are ripe for psychological manipulation. You become what you worship. You end up doing things that you would never think you could do. You become what you worship. Human cruelty comes not from serving the covenant God. You, you worship Moloch, you become like Moloch. Idolatry leads to moral corruption, physical exhaustion, and weariness in, in your life and in the land. And that's how I describe our land right now. We live in a dry and weary land. And finally, these chapters invite us to rethink what it means to be successful in God's eyes. Beware of prosperity. It doesn't really tell you anything. Instead, you and I are called to keep our eyes fixed upon God's kingdom and his ways. So I think those are some lessons that come out of this story so far. We're coming to the end of the story, but uh, those are the lessons of the demise of Israel. That's good. Okay, well, why don't we pray? And then uh, if you have any questions, we can do, I'll, I'll, I'll turn off the uh, recording and uh, then we can just field some questions. But let's pray. Lord, this is, a, this is a sobering, these are sobering texts that we were reading tonight. And it's easy to say, well, look what happened back then and look what people did and how could they have been so stupid. But man, the same thing happens in our own life. And so, Lord, let the, um, what happens to Israel, may that speak into our own life. We need to be instructed by your word. You have revealed yourself to us through your word. So help us to be people of the book and to know your word deeply. Lord, we are also called to be people of memory, with memory. And we need to remember what you have done in the past. We remember what you've done so then that speaks into our life, especially when we hit the ditch or when, we hit, when we're feeling overwhelmed. But we remember in the darkness what we have been taught in the light. And so help us to be people of memory and remembering what you have done in the world, through your word, and in our lives. Lord, our desire is to be alive to you and to walk with you and to do right in your eyes. We're thankful for the cross. We realize we don't have to have it all together, but our starting point is forgiveness and grace and your amazing generosity. But help us to live in response to what you have done for us. Help us to keep our eyes fixed upon you, the author and perfecter of our faith. Don't let the sin that so easily entangles us pull us down, but help us to keep our eyes fixed upon you. That's our desire in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.